Have you ever noticed that what is good news to some is bad news to others? You know, if your team wins, the other team loses. If you get a promotion, your coworkers don't. If you're crowned the queen, the rest of the girls aren't. Well, this morning we're going to begin a study of some good news that is good news for everyone, at least to all who will believe it and accept it. It's the good news according to Mark, the good news of Jesus Christ, and the good news of God. I'm going to begin, not as you might expect, with the first verse of Mark, but with the heading of this gospel, which my New American Standard Bible entitles, The Gospel According to Mark. Now, the word gospel comes from the Old English Godspell. You may have seen that on a play somewhere. It actually means good news. And while the Gospel of Mark nowhere says it was written by Mark, scholars throughout the centuries have identified Mark as the author and have attached his name to the Gospel they are convinced he wrote. But who is this Mark? Well, he's the John Mark, first mentioned by name in the book of Acts, chapter 12. When Peter was miraculously released from prison, he went to the home of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark, where many were gathered together and praying. John was Mary's son's Jewish name, and Mark, or Marcus, was his Roman name. We sometimes refer to him as John Mark, but most of the time we simply refer to him as Mark. Now, there's some evidence to indicate that Mary's home was also the site of the Last Supper and that the certain young man named in or mentioned in Mark 14 who followed Jesus and the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane wearing nothing but a sheet was Mark. Perhaps he had been in bed when Jesus and the disciples were eating in the upper room, and Mark, who was probably a teenager at the time, wrapped his bed clothing around him and snuck out of the house to see what was going on. When Jesus was arrested, Mark was seized also. But he doesn't refer to himself by name, simply noting in the gospel that a certain young man left the linen sheet behind and escaped naked. That's why he didn't mention his name. Well, the first time we're actually introduced to him in Acts 12, 25, we're told that Paul and Barnabas took John, again, who was also called Mark, with them when they went back to Antioch from Jerusalem. And then in chapter 13, where he's simply referred to as John, we find that he started with Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey as a helper. When they started traveling a dangerous overland route into modern Turkey, however, Mark left them and went back home. When Paul and Barnabas were then planning to begin another missionary journey, Barnabas, who we discover in Colossians, was Mark's cousin, wanted to give Mark a second chance, but 
Paul refused, and they parted company. Barnabas took Mark with him to Cyprus, and Paul took Silas with him on what would become Paul's second missionary journey. We lose track of Mark for about 10 years. Tradition tells us that he went to Egypt and founded a church in Alexandria from which his bones were stolen and buried under St. Mark's Basilica in Venice, which we actually saw this last summer, but we're not really sure. What we do know for sure is that when he reappears in the epistles, he is highly regarded by Paul and by Peter, who even referred to him as his son. Well, this is the mark we believe authored the gospel before us this morning. And he may be the one who first used the word that we translate gospel to refer to an account of the life of Jesus. Mark uses the term gospel three times in the first chapter. Matthew and Mark, or Matthew and Luke, wait until chapter 4 to use it, and John never does. Mark wasn't setting out to write a detailed biography of the life and times of Jesus, just a gospel, the good news, telling us what Jesus did. And that is indeed the focus of Mark's gospel, what Jesus did. He records for us only one long discourse of Jesus and only four parables. But he records 18 miracles. He gives us a record of our Lord's works, not his words. And he records them almost like an excited child recounting events as they happened, one right after another. His literary style isn't polished. He begins two out of three verses with the word and and uses the word immediately or straightway over 40 times. He's picturing Jesus on the move, and he wants us to stay alert so we don't miss a thing. Now, his gospel is the shortest of the four gospels found in the New Testament and was for years thought to be the least important. It is the shortest. It leaves out the bulk of Jesus' teaching. It doesn't even record the Christmas story. But what scholars have come to conclude within the last 200 years is that Mark's gospel was the first to be written and that Matthew and Luke most likely used his gospel as a source for writing theirs. But where did he get his information? He wasn't an apostle. He wasn't even a follower of Jesus when he was on earth. So where did his information come from? To read it, it sounds almost like an eyewitness testimony, and it is but it's Peter's. Early historians tell us that Mark wrote the gospel to preserve the teachings of the apostle Peter. He was asked to write them down so the church in Rome where Peter had been preaching would have them actually recorded. Some early historians indicate he did this after the death of Peter. Some scholars today suggest he did it before Peter's death. Either way, he wrote sometime between 55 and 70 A.D., probably around 60 or 65. So 
relatively close after the events he records for us. Now, he wrote for a largely Roman Gentile Christian leadership to, to give them a permanent record of the facts concerning Jesus' ministry and to give them the gospel, the good news, to share with their fellow citizens. We often call it the gospel of Mark. But it isn't good news about Mark. It's the good news according to Mark. The good news is about Jesus. And Mark makes that clear in the first sentence of his gospel. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is putting to pen the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He is recording the essential facts about Jesus that make his coming good news. He's not interested in Jewish history, as would be Matthew, who wrote for a Jewish audience. He wasn't trying to be a careful historian like Luke, who compiled a formal treatise of what Jesus did and said for a Gentile audience. He wasn't trying to be a theologian like John, who presented Jesus as the pre-existing word of God. Mark just wanted people to know of the life-changing good news about Jesus. The one who gave sight to the blind, healed the sick, calmed the storms, and raised the dead. It was the good news of Jesus Christ. Jesus was the name given by Joseph, or given to Joseph by the angel when he said, You shall call his name Jesus, for it is he who will save his people from their sins. Jesus is the Greek form of the Hebrew Joshua, which in King James English means Jehovah is salvation, or more accurately, Yahweh saves. And then Christ, or Christos, which means anointed one or Messiah, the one divinely appointed and anointed by God for a special mission. And this Jesus is the Son of God. He's divine. He is God in the flesh. And his coming is good news, even though some of the details at first look like bad news, especially when we note how Paul reduced the gospel to three facts about Jesus in 1 Corinthians 15, 1 through 4. The gospel Paul received and preached began with the fact that Jesus died. He died, however, for a purpose. He died for our sins, to pay the penalty for our sins. Paul then notes that he was buried taking our sins with him to the grave. And then he was raised on the third day, demonstrating to all that he has power over sin and death. That is the good news. And it doesn't get any better than that. Because all other good news is temporary. You passed a test. You got a promotion. The surgery was a success. The war is over. 
Those things are all good news, but they don't last. There's another test. The job changes. There's another disease, another war. The only thing that remains good news for all eternity is that Jesus died for your sins, was buried, and was raised on the third day. That good news lasts because it is the good news of God. Verses 2 and 3. As it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now Mark apparently refers to at least two and possibly three Old Testament sources here. The King James translators tried to avoid the problem of not being able to find the quote in the writings of Isaiah by simply saying, as is written in the prophets. But there's little textual support for those words. In Exodus 23, God promised the Israelites he would send an angel or messenger, the word is the same, sent before them to guard them on their journey into the promised land. In Malachi 3, God said he was going to send his messenger to clear the way before his coming in judgment. And in Isaiah 40, he spoke of a voice calling, clear the way for the Lord in the wilderness. Now, the rabbis had already tied Exodus 23 and Malachi 3 together to picture a messenger coming to both guard God's people and to warn them of judgment. And they identified that messenger as the Elijah who was prophesied to come before the great and terrible day of the Lord in Malachi 4. Well, Mark ties them all together and zeroes in on Isaiah's prophecy to focus on the one crying in the wilderness and identifies the messenger as John the Baptist. A fact confirmed by both the angel that foretold the birth of John to his father Zacharias and Jesus himself when he stated that Elijah had come and the disciples understood he had spoken to them about John the Baptist. Well, contrary to what we might read in Wikipedia, Mark was not twisting and distorting scripture here. He simply put the pieces together and helped us see that the good news of Jesus was the good news God had planned to send our way long before Jesus came. Beginning in Genesis 3.15, when God declared that the seed of woman would crush Satan's head, And all through the Old Testament, in ever-increasing clarity, God told his people the Redeemer, the Messiah, would come. His birth, his ministry, his death and resurrection were all prophesied centuries before God took on flesh and dwelt among us. 
The prophecies not only gave hope to the people of God when going through periods of judgment and when facing the consequences of sin, but they assure us after the fact that God is in control and his plans have not been thwarted. There is no need to live in fear or traumatize our children about the future. The future is ultimately in the hands of a gracious and loving Heavenly Father. Now, even when the news we hear is bad, be it fake news or the truth, the good news of God surpasses it all. We may be living in hard times, in a wilderness of sorts, but God sent a messenger into the wilderness of a fallen world to tell of his love for us and of the future he secured for us. The good news Mark will share with us is the good news of God, news about his son. News that through faith in him, even death can't separate us from one another or from the love of God. That is good news. Good news indeed. Next week, we'll meet the one sent by God to prepare the way for Jesus and to announce his arrival. Today, we just celebrate the fact that the good news has been delivered. Let's stand together.